Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, sometimes the experience that pushes a performer towards show business happens early. Imagine, if you will, being six feet tall by third grade. So essentially being like a living maypole. And uh, who, by the way, kids did dance around me in a circle. Multiple occasions. <laughs> multiple occasions. Even, not even on May 1st. Just any, it's, a, it's a good day to dance around a maypole. Um, but it also made me relatively confident, which is weird because I guess I just felt like nothing worse can happen than this. <laughs> <laughs> it's bullseye. This week, Aisha Tyler from that most tremendous of television programs, Archer. Bullseye correspondent Jordan Morris puts America in its place, literally, by ranking things. And David Hornsby talks about playing a defrocked priest turned drug addict on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And now, a surprisingly altruistic teenager on his new animated show, Unsupervised. It's the good stuff and just the good stuff in pop culture this week. On Bullseye. Let's go. Let's kick things off with some culture recommendations from our friends at the AV Club this week. Joining me are Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky in Chicago. Scott, what have you got for us? My, my pick is the new film, We Need to Talk About Kevin. It's uh, directed by Lynn Ramsey, and it's based on a novel by Lionel Shriver uh, about a, a woman who's dealing with the aftermath of her son's uh, Columbine-like school massacre. Though the film and the book reference Columbine, the most troubling aspect of both may be their portraits of maternal ambivalence. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this is a child she does not want. Okay, here's a clip that takes place before the tragedy. It's got Tilda Swinton, John C. Riley, and Ezra Miller as the titular Kevin. So, Kev, um, Mom had something that she wanted to tell you. I wanted to thank you for calling the ambulance. And? And I was concerned that you might be feeling responsible. Was that? Because you were supposed to be looking after her. We just don't want you to blame yourself. No, I don't. I mean, I, I never said I did. She's going to need a glass eye, Kevin. So we would appreciate you looking out for her and any name-calling. You don't really remember being a kid much, do you, Dad? See, he's just going to have to suck it up. Is it weird that I find Tilda Swinton pretty much unsettling no matter what, like even on the red carpet? <laughs> yeah, it's not weird. It's not weird. And she is unsettling here. She is not. She's about the opposite of motherly, I would say, in this, in this movie. Genevieve, what have you got for us this week? Uh, yeah, I want to talk about Lock and Key, which is a comic book series that recently released its 28th issue at the end of December. It's basically a large-scale haunted house story about the, these three kids who move into a sprawling mansion called Key House, and they gradually discover that the, the house is littered with these keys that have different powers of varying degrees of evilness. Do you have a favorite key? Oh, yeah, the head key. It allows you to open up your head and look inside and root around and put things in and take them out as you choose. Wait, what can you put into and take out of your head? You can, like, put an entire book's worth of knowledge or you can take out your sense of fear or things like that. Then. The um, author of this thing has uh, 
let's just say a relative in the industry. Yeah, uh, he definitely has some horror credentials. Uh, it's it's written by Joe Hill, uh, who is Stephen King's son. Uh, he actually uh, released a horror novel called Heart Shaped Box in 2007, and he just won the Eisner Award in 2011 for Best Writer for Lock and Key. The Eisner Award is like the, the number one most prestigious comic book award you can win, right? Yeah, it's like the Academy Awards of comic books. Scott Tobias's pick this week is the new film We Need to Talk About, Kevin, which has a staged release this month. Genevieve Kosky picked the comic series Lock and Key with a new issue out January 25th. You can find Scott and Genevieve at avclub.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Aisha Tyler, is uh, maybe the world's uh, prettiest funny black geek lady or the geekiest (laughs) black funny pretty lady or um, some kind of combination of those words that I haven't said yet uh, because I'm not just going to go through all of the possible combinations of those words because it would be a waste of all of our time. 6,758 Yeah. She was the host of Talk Soup. She was a regular on uh, Friends and CSI and 24, uh, maybe like the most popular television shows ever. Um, she's one of the panelists on CBS's The Talk. Um, on her podcast, Girl on Guy, she talks about guy stuff with... Uh, both guys and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, let it not be said that she doesn't talk about guy stuff with women on that show. Um, she's also one of the stars of uh, one of my absolute favorite television programs on television, Archer, on FX, where she plays uh, Lana, the uh, the most competent of the <laughs> incompetent spies on the show. Um, here she is in a scene from Archer. She is arguing with the titular Archer, played by John Benjamin. Uh, he is, well, he's often surprisingly competent. Uh, <laughs> he's a sort of idiot savant spy. Um, in this scene, they're trying to break into a palace on one of their missions, and Archer is manning the computer keyboard as they try to pull up the palace's schematics. So let's assume we can't access the palace through that same skylight. Okay. But maybe we overlooked an air shaft or maybe even some access below grade. Uh, so let's pull up the palace schematics. Um, okay. Maybe today. Hang on. If that works for you. Um, let me see. How about now? Anything? No. Uh, how about now? No. How about now? No. Anything? What are you doing back there? I don't know. What are you, just hitting random keys? Well, obviously. Ah, oh, damn it. Wait. Where is the hobbit guy? <laughs> a freaking hobbit works here? No, he's just Lana, a... Lana, they're called little people, Will not you hobbits. Sh- he's a hobbit enthusiast. Oh. Well, yeah, but he also knows how to work all the computers and satellites and Aisha Tyler, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for having me. Um, we are both San Francisco natives. I am, uh, I am excited uh, always to have uh, San Franciscan on the show. Yes, we have a strange kind of spidey sense. Yeah. I think it would be fair to say that we have a special spitey sense. Yes, and a uh, with a T. Yes. Yeah, towards towards Southern California. Well, I went home recently and I did a show where uh, I just mocked everybody. Uh, in San Francisco <laughs> because I had drunk up all their fresh water. You were born in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but uh, raised, I think, in large part in the East Bay, right? Yes, back and forth through, uh, between San Francisco and the East Bay. Um, yeah, like I was born in the city and lived in the East Bay until I was in, uh, 
freshman year in high school went back to San Francisco and finished high school in San Francisco. Your folks divorced when you were relatively young mm-hmm. and you were raised by your dad, mm-hmm. which is kind of an unusual thing to it have is, your... I yeah. mean, my folks divorced when they, when I was relatively young and I split time and even that was relatively unusual. Yeah, women always seem to get, I don't know, is that is it the long end or the short end of the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on the kid. It depends on the time of day, too. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, this is a choice. Other times you're like, maybe you'll just disappear for a while. Um, no, I, my parents, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nouveau riche thing to be sending the kids back and forth on weekends. Poor people just go, how much can you afford? Can you afford one? Can you afford two? Just take that one. You take the sofa. I'll take the, I'll take the TV. Goodbye. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no Kramer versus Kramer. When you can't, when you can barely afford groceries, so my parents just each took one because that was what they could manage, and uh, and it worked out great. And my dad took me because I was older and I could cook for him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did you cook for your dad? I had a very limited repertoire. Um, I could make fried eggs. I could make spinach, frozen spinach out of a bag. My father's specialty was uh, was <laughs> my father men. Our cat, like one pot casserole cookers, you know, and this was kind of before like the real kind of modern TV dinner era. So my father had this specialty that was rice aroni with chopped up chicken and raisins and spinach all stirred into the pot. And I must have eaten rice aroni and like a whole stick of butter. I'm, I ate rice aroni. I mean, it's, it's amazing I didn't have, you know, the gout or rickets or something like that or scurvy. I guess um, one of the central mysteries that I was trying to figure out as I was learning about you um, in, prepara- in preparing for this interview was. Um, connecting the dots between you being uh, good-looking enough to star in and host television programs... And um, and being and identifying as a geek. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we have to go back further. And one of my parents were still married. Um, we lived in the East Bay, and I went to. They scraped and saved my mom. You know, they were they were really lower working class. You know, didn't have a lot of money, but they were both very focused on education. So they scraped and they saved, and and I they sent me to private school, and uh, I was the only black kid in my school <laughs> for for almost all of my childhood until I was a teenager. So if you uh, imagine, if you will. Um, being six feet tall by third grade. Uh, so essentially being like a living maypole. And uh, who, by the way, kids did dance around me in a circle. Multiple <laughs> occasions. Multiple occasions. Even, not even on May 1st. Just any, it's, a, it's a good day to dance around a maypole. Wait, um, are you telling me that these kids weren't even just observing May Day? No, no. We just, know just that kids random, will observe May Day with whatever tall object happens kids, to be kids around. Kids will collect ribbons and they will build a maypole. <laughs> without, you don't have to, you have to bid them to do it. That's, it's, they feel, they feel mi- it in the air. They're midi- if they're medievalists or they're, or they're international socialists. Time to certainly. Daisy Crown. Uh, but, you know, just on a random Thursday, let's dance around the big girl. So I was the only black kid in my school. My parents were poor. Um, and uh, so, you know, kind of all the social cues that were important when you were a kid, you know, the right clothes, the right shoes, you know, uh, when Nikes came out and everybody had Nikes and I had uh, shoes that my mother had found in a free box. Um, and they, you know, one was an, a knit booty and one was a flip flop. Um, so there was that. And then when I went home, I lived in a black neighborhood and I talked, you know, in their minds like a white kid and they thought I was fancy and putting on airs. And uh, and yes, I did get jumped every few months in that neighborhood as well you know it did two things it it made me an isolated kid but it also made me relatively confident which is weird because i guess i just felt like nothing worse gonna happen than this (laughs) (laughs) so you know i just figured like i'll just put myself out there because it can't get any worse than it's already gotten 
You, you mentioned your surprising confidence. I I want to I want to uh, play a, a clip for you and then and then talk a, a little bit about it. This is um uh, this is actually from your high school years. Oh no! From the steps, I can hear they'd already started. It was Saturday morning, and I overslept, so now I was really late to these auditions. Channel 7 was doing a story on us, School of the Arts, S-O-T-A, you know, soda. We're part of McAteer High, and people are calling us the San Francisco fame. Dance with me, I want to be your partner, can't you see? They were casting a student to be the narrator, someone with humongous talent and personality. Oh, God. That was just physically painful, I have to say. <laughs> physically painful. That is this uh, TV documentary. Uh, I guess they they said Channel 7, so I'm guessing it must have been from KGO. We got it from, uh, we got it from the internet mm-hmm. um, uh, about uh, the high school that you attended, which at the time was, at, uh, was a sort of sub-high school at uh, McAteer High School in San Francisco and later became a, an independent high school. Yeah. Um, this is the part where I, I say I'm also a graduate of that high school. Oh, how exciting. You went there? Yeah, I, I went to School of the Arts and, in fact, met my wife there. Oh, that's adorable. People would sometimes ask me then, and even now, like, was it like fame? Like, were there people singing and dancing in the hallways? Kind of. I feel yeah, like there people were. did. Yeah, yeah, people totally did. When I yeah. was, yeah, people totally. I would just say, yeah. I mean, it wasn't choreographed. It was more spontaneous oh, than yeah. that. No, I, I feel like there would be like dance offs, like in the courtyard and stuff like that. You would go and people would just start dancing. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as ridiculous as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there it was. It was very fame like. And then there were a lot of there. We had some really great graphic artists, and they would do murals and stuff like that, and they would paint people's jackets. And it's it, that does sound ridiculous. Yeah, no, but it was. It was very. It was. It was very. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aisha Tyler. She's one of the stars of the animated FX show Archer. Early in your career, did you play uh, uh, what they call black rooms? Did you play the the, the chocolate Thursdays and the? <laughs> um, uh, my comedy is not particularly niche in that way that's why i ask yeah. <laughs> my, i'll tell you my, my my friend uh uh my friend al madrigal is his he's he's of mixed race his dad is mexican-american and but he he reads visually as latino mm-hmm. and he actually just got a full-time job as the senior latino correspondent on the daily show that's so great i know he's great oh, he's, good for him. he's totally brilliant and um he he sometimes does latino themed shows mm-hmm. with latino audiences mm-hmm. Where the expectation is that he's going to do Latino material. And most of Al's Latino material is about how uh, confused he is about his Latino identity, <laughs> which is not what they want. They want stuff. Maybe maybe they want stuff about how, you know, Salvadorians hate Mexicans or something, you know. <laughs> oh, that was inside. I didn't yeah. even know that was true. Yeah. Well, something. So, something like something <laughs> along those lines. And like um, and basically any like culturally homogeneous group has certain really clear expectations about clear what expectations, they want from performers. Incredibly dogmatic and almost unyielding rules. Right. Yeah. And you 
and uh, you ran into those cultural expectations as a kid when you were the private school kid. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and you know about what comedy comedy audiences can expect from a performer, mm-hmm. you know, and how ruthless they can be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, um, you know, early, very early in my career when I was dying to get on stage anywhere I could, I would play some traditionally – uh, quote unquote black rooms and I would have to do a lot of diffusing right at the top of the show I'd have to like explain myself why I talk like you know I had a material I was like why I talk like this you know and I'm not I'm not trying to you know look down on anybody and I'm not trying to be something I'm not and I would have to really explain a lot of that to people um, and it's so funny I on my show uh, Bill Burr came on and we were talking about the fact that he worked a lot of black rooms when he was coming up you know and and I told him you know white comics get a pass in those rooms because and Bill's a very ferocious com- he actually talked yes. about this a little bit on mm-hmm. our show Bill's a very ferocious comedian and sort of attributes part of his ferocity to the fact that he had to be a little bit ferocious oh, to be to the just, white guy in those he rooms. He just had to drill it down people's yeah. throats. But what I told him was, you have an you would have an easier time of it than me because you're white. They don't have any expectations of you other than they don't think you're going to be funny. Right. With me, <laughs> you know, with me, they're like, if, if she doesn't come out and hit, you know, A, B, and C touch points, like she's no good. And uh, you know, if you looked at shows like Def Comedy Jam and, and its heyday, there were so many really funny, talented black comics that never would have gotten on that show. Because they just weren't doing the type of comedy that fit that mold. And I never did. And, you know, look, comedy is about being great comics are. And and I think, you know, a lot of guys who are working right now would say this. And I think Louis C.K. is a perfect example of this. And so is Bill. The only way to be truly funny is to be fully and 100 percent uncompromisingly yourself at all times on stage. People see and smell inauthenticity more now than ever. They smell an act. You know what I mean? Comedy is very different than it was even 10 years ago where I could get up and do a character and kind of be in some mode. You know what I mean? And even guys who used to do that then don't do it now. So freeing myself of this idea that I had to fit a certain mold was when I was able to be my funniest. So, you know, I gave up on that very early on. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. You know what's great? Social media. So social. That's why you should follow us on Twitter, at Bullseye. And like us on Facebook. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aisha Tyler, one of the stars of the animated FX show, Archer. I want to play uh, another clip from Archer, which, as I think I mentioned, is like pretty much my favorite show. Um, this is from the new season of Archer, which uh, just started on FX. Um, your character, Lana, is a uh, a very competent uh, super spy, or at least what passes for very competent in a very incompetent super spying organization. <laughs> and uh, Archer, the titular main character, is... Um, well, I, he's, he's surprisingly competent, uh, given how, uh, 
how incompetent he should be, given his uh, sexual addiction, his cavalier attitude. His rampant alcoholism. Yeah, his just general... He's sort of like what James Bond should be like, but also... He's really who James Bond is. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like uh, when Adam created the character, he felt like, you know, you look at this guy, he's always drinking, he sleeps around, he, he li- throws women away like toilet paper, but somehow he still kind of remains, you know, this hero figure. Well, what if we really presented James Bond like in his purest form? That's who Sterling Archer is. So in the first episode of the new season, uh, we should say that Archer's mom is uh, the boss of the spy agency, which leads to a lot of mother issues. And uh, Archer's mom starts dating Burt Reynolds, uh, the actual <laughs> Burt Reynolds, not a character. I mean, the character is played by Burt Reynolds, but it is Burt Reynolds. And it's so meta. Uh, this scene is an argument between Lana and Archer uh, about that very subject. And you will briefly hear another agent uh, played by uh, the great Chris Parnell. You get off. Cheryl, I'm pretty tense right now. Because of the Cubans or because Burt Reynolds is doing your mom? <laughs> what? Yeah, oh, laugh it up. I am. Cyril. Burt Reynolds is actually b- Archer! Ah, you broke my freaking nose! What's that, Cyril? Sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of I broke your nose. Bullying Cyril isn't gonna make Burt Reynolds stop shtupping your mom. He's not doing that. But even if he is, which he is... No, he isn't! This Cuban hit squad is no joke. So if I were you, I'd lay low in the safe house for a few days until we work out a plan to neutralize them. Oh, yeah, okay. The safe house. I'm sorry. Your words made sense, but your sarcastic tone did not. (laughs) Because there are no Cubans. Uh, Mother just wants me out of the way so she can do unspeakable things with Burt Reynolds. So nice try, idiot. I love it that I'm the idiot. What I love about your character on Archer is that um, you get to be the straight man for this horrible, horrible uh, person. (laughs) But your your straight man character is also very insane. Yes. Oh, she's incredibly flawed. But I, I, you know, in... I love her so much. I mean, she does have to lay pipe occasionally. You know, Lana's always the one that's like, we've got to save the train from the runaway evil group of people, you know. Um, but she, she... Is that what lay pipe means? Yes. Oh, yeah. In, in, in the business. Yes. Well, it has okay. other meanings. I'm sure, you know, okay. I'm sure you could disambiguate on okay. Wiki. But, um, but in my particular case, in the Hollywood sense, lay pipe means to, uh, to just drive narrative. You okay. Know, and was like, you know, remember when we met each other back in, in 76 right. in San Francisco at the bar? With the, that's, that's lay pipe. Wait, but so, in 1976 in San Francisco at the bar, lay pipe means something different. Yeah, so it, still means, it still means that different thing in San yeah. Francisco at a bar right. now. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but what I have always loved about Lana is that she is someone who is kind of not high strung, but she's very, you know, her type A tendencies get the best of her at all times. I mean, she she's striving for excellence. She's surrounded by idiots. But, you know, she's she drinks just as much as everybody else. You know, she she brawls. She sleeps with the wrong people. She's desperate. for You know, she's kind of ultimately casting men away and then desperate for affection. You know, there's a scene in there's a scene in uh, season two where, you know, she gets drunk at a party at at Sterling's house and then starts crying about why, like, they never had a baby together. I mean, you know, she's she's got all her own kind of set of problems. Um, but she. And, you know, and she's a she's a porn addict. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's a porn addict. She's a closet Republican. She has a lot of things going on. She's 
she's insanely fun to play. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a character I've loved more than her. Everyone in the show is constantly remarking upon how huge her hands are. She has large hands. And then people write me, I'm like, my hands are delicate and elegant. Thank you very much. They're well kept. My nails are clean. Um, Someone yes. sent those cricket paddles. <laughs> cricket paddles. I prefer high lie hook. Um, <laughs> and you know she's kind of over, uh, crazily overly sexualized you know there was like a scene in season one where she was supposed to go infiltrate this boat with this arms dealer and she just ends up like staying she needs a break she ends up staying on the boat with this guy and like drinking with him and then having like <laughs> all this terrible three-way with sterling so she's she's got some pretty f- like fluid um uh boundaries one so. of the things about voiceover and i've only done it a few times but one of the weird things is that you think that when you're acting, there's like one true feeling that you're supposed to express mm-hmm. and that your goal is to 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 express that true feeling. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing voice work, like part of what you're doing is just finding is just expressing every feeling that it could be so that they can pick from amongst them and chop them up into little tiny pieces and put them back together and it's it's a weird thing to like have a feeling about a line and then have to turn around on a dime and be like but what if it was completely different right but it, on the other hand yes Acting with other actors is is much more nuanced because not only are you having whatever set of thoughts and feelings your character is having in the scene, but you're reacting to other people's thoughts and feelings and and their physical stance and what's happening in the room and what you're touching, what you're picking up, whatever you're doing, how your pants feel. You know what I mean? How wardrobe got them wrong. Um, So so yes. And with voiceover, it is a lot more like for me. It's much more like a math problem. It's just like I'm going to just bang on this until the perfect thing pops out the other side. And it's not so it's not so it's not so uh you know exsanguinated that like I'm just like just say it five ways. It's just like maybe Lana feels this way about it. Maybe she feels that way about it. Maybe and I just keep kind of going at it. Yeah. But I think it's the more you do that the more that kind of trigger becomes easier to pull. Um, Excellent and, use of exsanguinated, by the way. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'd like to provide an SAT word in every you, you won. You won public radio guest of the year for Thank that one. Thank you. I expect a board game or at least a tote bag from someone. <laughs> Magnetic bumper sticker. You you decide. I'll take anything. Um, but uh, so for me, I really love the idea of getting in there and saying, okay, what is the absolute most hilarious way to say this? And then we'll play a lot, you know, and Adam will go, um, you know, try it this way or I'll say, Hey, let me just get one more crack at this. And then sometimes I'll surprise them. I, you know, they've, you know, those guys have spent a bunch of time with the script before I get it. So when, when I can crack them up, then, then I know, okay, I, I nailed this. There's something transformative that they do too. I mm-hmm. saw Lee Unkrich one, once uh, the animation director, Lee Unkrich once demonstrate uh, how they put together a line in toy story three. And it was one of Tom Hanks's lines. And I think we can all agree that Tom Hanks is a decent actor. <laughs> Well, At yes. least a solid B. I mean, you know, the Oscars notwithstanding. This guy's fair enough. Um, <laughs> and they showed him, do he? and Lee showed him doing the line a few different times. And then showed the waveform, the visual representation of the audio. Then showed them cutting up this one sentence line into essentially word parts. Not even just words, word parts. Piecing the readings together. 
and then showed the video of those readings because they had they shoot video all the time because it was a Toy Story movie, mm-hmm. so they got doing it for behind the scenes and whatever because mm-hmm. they have a five hundred million dollars, so they might as well. And um, and plus, you know, who doesn't want to look at Tom Hanks? He's one of, our, one of the most beloved men in America. All day long, an American treasure. Yeah, and um, and essentially, the visual representation of this process was so stunning. This transformation of this these line readings. And you can tell on Archer that, um, you know, one of the remarkable things is how perfect and tight and fluid the animation process makes those scripts. There's never a point where I feel like that beat was anything less than perfect. Yes. <laughs> but you get but I mean you get to, you go into the you go into the studio, you do just your lines, you do them a thousand different times, whatever, and you go through this whole weird sausage barfing process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, you get to watch this thing that came out of that. Well, it's interesting. The one of the number one questions I get from fans about of the sh- about the show, like when I do stand up, I get a lot of Archer fans, and you know, you know they come up afterwards and go like, you know, so do you guys all record together? That's the number one question. Do you guys all record together? Because that's how beautifully they assemble all those moving parts into one thing. That you know, when we, you know, it's it's an ensemble show, and you know, it's we're all together as characters much of the time in that show. I mean, it's essentially an office comedy with spies and um the fact that they're able to take these you know all these moving parts and and kind of mush them together into this kind of really beautiful kind of you know fluid um orchestration is it is a testament to how good they are at their jobs um uh, i don't think they're doing any disney level crap with the chopping up of the word parts i think that any money that might be going to that is going to craft services and candy bar snacking at uh at the offices over at at, uh floyd county but um I mean, yeah. We, I don't know. I visited there one time. I don't remember any candy bars. Oh, you, Maybe a, they hid them. There's a stash. Do you think they hid the candy bars oh, from they, me? From you? Yes. They said thorns coming over. Strangers, hide the candy bars. Strangers don't get candy bars. That's just for the. That's just for the initiata. Um, but uh, but yeah. I mean, I think that the fact that people are convinced that all of those actors are always together in a room doing that show is a testament to how well it's assembled uh, at the back end and how elegant every aspect of that animation process is because it's a beautiful looking show. It's done very differently than something like Toy Story. You know, those backgrounds are three D watercolor paintings. Um, so av- so as so to avoid the uh, Scooby Doo kind of repeating backgrounds on a you know on a treadmill kind of a thing. Um, and it's a testament to the vision of, of the guys that created the show, you know, Matt Thompson and Adam Reed, just, you know, incredible talents and, and had a vision for it. And uh, I'm sure Adam, if he heard me saying this, would be on his back laughing hysterically. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know, they truly created something unique and there's nothing like it on television, which I, I say that everybody says that, says that, but I, I say that without, without qualification. There's nothing like Archer on television. Aisha Tyler, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was a joy. Aisha Tyler is one of the stars of the just tremendous FX show, Archer. You can catch it Thursdays on FX. She's also the host of the podcast Girl on Guy, which you can find in iTunes, and part of the CBS daytime talk show, The Talk. In this topsy-turvy world, only one man can bring order to the thousands, nay, millions of things that exist. 
With his signature segment, Jordan Ranks America, here's Bullseye correspondent, Jordan Morris. New to the list at number five, it's pomegranates. They're full of antioxidants, plus while you eat them, you can pretend you're a jackal on the Serengeti tearing into a water buffalo carcass. Rising fast at number four, it's dubstep. It's hard to say what this is, but talking about it is a good way to relate to teens in colorful sweatshirts. Steady at number three, it's staying in with a bottle of wine in a movie. Suggest this activity in lieu of saying outright, it's been five dates, let's get down to business. With its eye on the top spot at number two, it's Vermont. Who cares what else is going on here? There's buttloads of maple syrup, and that's good enough for me. Taking the top spot this month, it's Jason Statham. He's great at kicking dudes in the face while always staying super European-y. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris with Jordan Ranks America. Jordan Morris is a writer and comedian based in Los Angeles. He co-hosts with me the comedy podcast Jordan Jesse Go, which you can check out for free in iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org. Just be advised that it is spectacularly vulgar. David Hornsby's character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is a defrocked priest who becomes addicted to crack cocaine, lives in the street, has his legs broken by the mob, his neck cut, and is sexually assaulted by a street dog. And he tells me, after the break, that it's sort of reflective of his real-life relationship with his co-writers on the show. That's when we come back in just a second on Bullseye from PRI, Publitadio International. Once again, MaximumFun.org and Bullseye are proud to partner with the SF Sketchfest, our favorite comedy festival in the entire world. On Saturday, January 21st at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco, we'll be presenting an afternoon with Eagleheart, featuring Chris Elliott, along with Brett Gelman, Maria Thayer, and Andy Blitz, and show creators Michael Komen, Andrew Weinberg, and co-executive producer Jason Woliner in a lively and humorous panel. And on Friday, January 20th at Cobb's Comedy Club, we'll present John Hodgman, an evening of my expertise. It's an evening with John Hodgman, contributor to The Daily Show, former guest host of this program, host of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, and of course, best-selling author of the areas of my expertise, more information than you require, and the recently released That Is All. You can find information about these fantastic shows at MaximumFun.org and more information about the SF Sketchfest online at sfsketchfest.com. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. 
Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. If you already missed The Sound of Young America, don't worry. In honor of the launch of Bullseye, we've got a free torrent at MaximumFun.org of our entire recorded archive of The Sound of Young America. 15 gigabytes of audio and video, all absolutely free. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio infotainment, all free to download and distribute. Find it in your favorite torrent tracker or online at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It would be tough to have a more undignified screen career than that of David Hornsby. And (laughs) it's almost all because of one role. Hornsby is a writer and producer on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, an FX series about a group of friends who own a bar and do terrible, terrible things together. Things usually go badly for the protagonists of the show, but... That, frankly, is nothing compared to how badly they go for the recurring character that Hornsby plays on the show, Rickety Cricket. Rickety Cricket has faced unrequited love. He's had his legs broken by the mob. He found peace briefly as a Catholic priest before being defrocked and spiraling into crack addiction. Give us the money! Oh, now. Spent the money. Spent the money on these sweet ass kettle drums. Look at these. Those are trash cans. Trash cans, cricket! Oh, these are trash cans? Uh, then why do they sound like this? You sold our drug money on two garbage cans? No, 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 no. I did some too. He has uh, also had worse things happen to him, uh, which I cannot talk about on the radio. Uh, really, really, really worse things involving having his throat slit and uh, street dogs. Maybe that's why Hornsby's latest creations, the two working-class high school boys at the center of the new FX series, Unsupervised, are somehow so dignified, despite the fact that horrible things happen to them, too. Dude, we can achieve anything we set our minds to. We just need positive role models to inspire us. Yeah, we don't got no freaking guidance. I know. My dad lives on a porch and drinks all day. I don't even know where my real mom is. Who, who the hell are we supposed to look up to? Dude, who's the most positive people we know? Freaking fighter pilots, bombing enemies for our freedom, freaking F-15, freaking F-14, freaking Blackhawks, freaking stealth with nine. No, man, I'm talking about the baseball team. Oh, sh**. The baseball team's freaking positive as hell. That was a clip from Unsupervised with David Hornsby as Joel and Justin Long as Gary. But before we get to Unsupervised, we're going to talk about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. David told me that his character, Rickety Cricket, is kind of based on his real-life relationship with It's Always Sunny stars Rob McElhenney, Glenn Howerton, and Charlie Day. And I think, you know, the cricket is just uh, is an extension of how they like to treat me in, in real life in some form. You know, like... Uh, you know, just to be the punching bag sometimes of, of jokes. And, and uh, in fact, I remember writing one episode. Um, it was third or fourth season. I can't remember. Off the top. I think it was fourth season. We wrote a colonial episode. It's a flashback in the colonial times. And, and I wrote that one. And, uh, and I remember writing it thinking, uh, oh, it would be f- I guess I just remember sitting there being like, uh, well, it would be funny if D spits in my face, I guess, because the guys will really like that. You know, when you, you work for someone and you sort of know what, oh, I know they'll like that. And I'm like, I know if, if, I, if I write D spits in Cricket's face, 
then that'll get a laugh from them when they're reading this draft. So uh, <laughs> even though I'm like, I know when we get to that day, I'll, you know, I'll just have a bunch of spacula in my face. But uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's an extension of uh, what they find funny and they like, you know, I'm sort of the button up guy. So they like to uh, on me as much as they can. Is it challenging to find um, new indignities for Rickety Cricket? <laughs> as a character like one of the things about comedy is you have to top the last thing that you did you can't go sure. down in comedy right no yeah it, you definitely want to kind of constantly you know up your game with how he's i mean we've already blown his head off um <laughs> in uh, in a past in a flashback episode uh so the it, it is uh i i, I sort of see a, a a degenerative arc for him uh, which, you know, whether we do or not, we'll see. But, um, no, you always – it is – it, it kind of comes off story first. We always sort of base it in story and just what would be funny. We don't try to force anything, ideally. But crazy-ass stuff happens. Crazy-ass stuff, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we've – you know, we've uh, – I mean, the the last the last episode was a high school episode that I think aired that I was in. And uh, uh, I had ringworm all over me. Um <laughs> I, you know, my, my, yes, my, my neck was cut up. I, I got shot in the hand this season. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm always looking for, for new ailments, but uh, again, if it's, if it's, if it spawns from story, you know, we, we look to that you, first. You were already like homeless and toothless. Like, yeah. No, let's, just... let's point out that you weren't exactly starting from the peak of your game before the ringworm and the neck injuries and a shot in the hand oh no no and 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 the guys enjoy it you know it's it's always it's what can we do to cricket this year you know so uh you know everyone pitches out stuff and you know we see what sticks and uh uh and i just go along with it because they pay me and uh it's an after check but it's you know it it, it cashes and so I, i'll take it um i interviewed uh paul feig about uh his show freaks and geeks once yeah and i I was so impressed when he described the way that they wrote their single season of that wonderful show. Yeah. Which was that um, uh, they had this staff of writers and, um, you know, all brilliant writers, many of whom went on to even bigger things than that show. Um, And they all came in and, and he like passed out index cards and sort of sent them off on a sort of mini retreat to write down the most horrible things that happened to them between age 13 and 18. Oh, that's great. And then they just put them all up on one wall. And then just any time they were stuck, they went to the like wall of indignities, <laughs> like the nightmare wall, and just pulled something down. And, you know, so the part in Freaks and Geeks where uh, the protagonist buys a European disco jumpsuit and wears it to school yeah. was it just something that Paul Feig did oh, when really? he was in high school. He well, just did that. That is truth. That, that I mean, is that, that's honest, truth on screen. God's own honest truth. And I wonder how comfortable you are with revisiting your adolescence when you're writing about adolescence for uh, your new show, Un- Unsupervised. Yeah, m- myself and I, I write it with Rob Rosell and Scott Martyr. We we all work together on on It's Always Sunny and have for a few years. And um, we all we do is talk about high school experience. And 
uh, you know, anything from like, ah, uh, oh, this kid died, you know, he was selling drugs and he got shot or, you know, this, <laughs> so this girl. the funny stuff, like the yeah. really funny well, stuff. Well, but, you know, we draw from, you know, the, the, you know, our show is about um, these, these two guys, these two freshmen in high school and, and sort of their very earnest point of view on a very dark world, which is, you know, ideally we're trying to, we're trying to portray you know, high school as it as it is, and how our characters react off that. I think we've seen a lot of sort of crass and world-weary kids mm-hmm. um, and adolescents, especially in animation, I think maybe especially because of the success of South Park. Um, but yeah. also, you know, there's just the kind of uh, general, detached, ironic, world-weary, uh, Daria, adult-like, teenager that uh we've seen a lot of in the past 15 years sure um i'd say alan gregory was a, as an example that yeah. was, I think, was just on tv yeah exactly and that can be really great sure. and funny especially if the jokes work um both of your protagonists are uh just the opposite of that um these are kids in a world of just tremendous pain just a just a world that is just kicking them in the junk constantly <laughs> um trying to figure out how to believe in the like wellspring of positivity that is flowing out of them constantly yeah they i mean the difference between i get the thing that we like that attract us about the characters was just how optimistic they always were they don't see them themselves you know their father leaving and living under a porch or or the, their parents being too old to even participate in their lives being a downside you know they they see it as in fact in the pilot he says um you know my character says i you know i held my breath the other day and passed out no one even came and got me like you can do whatever you want at my house it's awesome <laughs> um so you know there's this sense of like oh god these kids are gonna you know they're gonna kill themselves because they just have they have no one looking out, out for them um, but they, the notion that they they look at at that and don't see a disadvantage, you know, they they see an advantage, and um, you know, maybe every now and then they may they might say, uh, you know, right now it might be good to have a dad, you know, but oh well, uh, but you know, the the positivity that they have, um, the other characters around them can sort of make that observation of like, man, I, y'all need a dad, straight up, y'all need a dad. <laughs> It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Hornsby. He's one of the co-creators and the stars of the animated show Unsupervised. It airs Thursdays on FX. It reminded me a little bit of one of my um, one of my favorite shows, King of the Hill, um, mm-hmm. and the way that both it, it treats a world that you don't get to see on TV a lot with a lot of sensitivity. Um, the, the way that it uh, relates sort of big, broad comedy to, you know, small social comedy and sort of lets them live together. And also, especially the way that in contrast to movies where everything is about a big transformational change, right. TV is TV is often about the tension of... Uh, an in-between place like adolescence, right? Like a movie about an adolescent is about becoming a man mm-hmm. and a TV show about an adolescent is about how uncomfortable and weird it is to be 
in between child and adult. Right. It just explores that theme. And, and, and they're always the same every week. <laughs> and you're, Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it also just vibrates with that energy. I mean, just because when you're an adolescent, in fact, one of the characters in your show says this in, in maybe the third episode or something like that. They just, they, they just say this. They just say like... I don't really think there is any other time besides right this very second. Right. Yeah. No, they live in the moment. You know, yeah, they absolutely live in the moment. And and, uh, and whatever, like, you know, like, dude, that was a, that was a great idea. Like, yeah, I just thought of it just right now. You know, it's just, <laughs> just completely just no no foresight into it. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, the the show is about, you know, that uh, it's, it's as much as we can um, with keeping it funny make uh not make fun of anyone but make you know try to portray adolescence in a comedy without being as broad as let's say a family guy but having some of those elements but um yeah i mean when we when we were talking about originally like what's going to be the tone of the show how big are we going to go are we gonna have flashbacks and and cutting to you know crazy pops and things like that and you know what something like family guy does or um, or is it more Simpsons, where it's just like a big, broad, sometimes satire of of society, or or is it smaller, like King of the Hill? And and it was, yeah, it was somewhere in between that. This King of the Hill with a little bit of Simpsons there, because we all grew up on Simpsons, you know, uh, uh, watching all those episodes. And and um, so, yeah, it, it, that's that's something that's. I'm glad that reflects that. Cause King of the Hill is definitely something that influenced us. I don't feel like I expected feelings to be so central because you have very yeah. broad I mean some of the peripheral characters some of the neighbors and stuff like that are very broadly drawn sure. goofy ridiculous characters they wouldn't be completely out of place on the family guy or, or another right, yeah. very broad jokey animated show um, but the these central characters always play emotional beats the jokes are never about jokes the jokes are always about character yeah and i think that's something we uh you know we took from sunny in a way and in a way it's very different than sunny i mean um we wanted the, some people that weren't selfish you know and, and out for their best interest uh these work but they're both you know they're all both of those characters in sunny and unsupervised are, are so driven you know i mean these are kids that will uh, you know, they feel like they don't want to be uh, considered bad. If they get in trouble, they don't want to be associated with the bad kids and and uh, be seen as, a, as we call it, the kids under the bleachers, the hangout under the bleachers and smoke. And we need to do something positive and make sure we're, you know, positive and they join the, the baseball team to have uh, positive role models in their lives because they don't have any other role models. Um, they're like actively seeking out to make themselves better people or to help out their friends, et cetera. Um, so that, that's what attracted us, us, us to that and, and how much heart they have, certainly. Um, I think, you know, at one point, one of the characters says, uh, I think my character says, um, a girl who wants to take drugs and we're trying to get her to come out, go outside, go, you know, like, don't you want to go like sing and play or fall in love? Uh, you know, and like, and she doesn't want to, and I'm just, and he's, and I'm getting so mad with her. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just so mad that people don't, don't freaking like sunshine, you know, because it's like, it gives freaking life to everything. <laughs> Without it, we would be nothing. It's like, I know, man, but like, she don't understand that yet. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, it's getting, they want people to understand their, their point of view and, um, and have that sort of that positivity uh, infect everyone. There's something scary about it and tragic about it too, because they're, poverty and their circumstances amplify the 
powerlessness that is inherent in being a 14 year old yeah that you have this this incredible drive to be a grown-up and to exert your will upon the world and you think you've got something like you're not 100 percent sure what it is but you've got something but you can't do nothing yeah, you're you're it's what you're yeah, exactly. They you sort of have handcuffs on as a teenager. You in fact, we were just, you know, just talking about an episode uh about getting a fake ID, you know, and what what their version of getting a fake ID is and and for them it's getting a fake ID so they can donate blood. <laughs> because you have to be 16 and uh you you know or maybe you have to have a parent's consent, but they don't have parents to like like my stepmom says she don't want to sign no more crap. Uh, cuz she's not my mom and not, you know. So it's um for for us it's it's finding those those yeah those teenage things about you know wanting to do so much but being handcuffed by your age um and but what is it that how do they approach that problem and i think that's something we learned from sunny is what's a funny angle for each character that really is indicative of their character and and we try not to hang too much on just jokes i mean you know none of us are really uh, you know, great just joke writers. So it's it's what's uh, what's a funny character thing? That's just a really funny take on the world. Um, what what kind of teenager were you? Um, I see. I was not. I was a little bit more like I was like the theater theater nerd in a way. So in a way, my experiences are very sort of uh, specific to the guy that was doing plays in high school. You know, uh-huh. so it wasn't always, uh, you know, the guy going to a million parties in high school. It's the straight guy who was doing yeah, plays yes, in high the, school. Of course, the straight guy. I can relate man. to that. So I know it's a, it's a specific. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're either like if you're in this business, you're either that guy or, you know, or, you know that person that was doing theater from very early age in, in a sense or, you know, who's excited about, you know, doing uh, acting or something. And, or you're the guy that, you know, you know, smoke pot through college and then just decided to, to write and you're really good at it and, and you had a normal you know upbringing but uh no i you might school, just be crazy handsome yeah yeah you might just be crazy handsome absolutely uh my uh you know my high school experience i i was i was uh kind of the class clown a bit um i i realized when women were not attracted girls were not attracted to me that uh that my best bet would get attention was uh was through making people laugh and then and use that, uh, you know, I would run for, uh, like, student council or stuff like that and just make my, my posters for uh, student council would just lance someone else's prior election campaign, you know. So, <laughs> so you ran parody student election I ran, yeah, campaigns. Yeah, exactly, exactly, to, uh, you know, to someone else's, you know, uh, unfortunate. Did you win? I did win, yeah. Yeah, me and too. I, I, I did the same thing. I well, totally won. Yeah. yeah. Thorn, the T is for leadership, was my slogan. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. We had, uh, yes, there was someone who had a, I think she had a, a series of just serious posters, and I decided to mock them. And uh, It really know. upsets the people who actually wanted to be on the student council. I felt bad and about do good. that. Yeah, when yeah. you look back, it you feel terrible. students, yeah. Yeah, you actually help, help other students. I was so busy coming up with a, you know, campaign angle that uh, yeah. I'm like, well, oh, I don't want this. Yeah, I, I thought making... Jokes. I thought thinking of jokes and putting them on posters was fun. Sure. Because normally you're not allowed to put up posters around the school with sure. jokes on them. It's, it's it's much like you know. It's much like now. You you write something and you think it's funny, and then they want you to make twenty two of them, and you're like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I just wanted to write that. <laughs> you had to get your friend Hua 
See, I got my friend Hua to be the vice president. He did all the work. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so that's that's like uh, sort of a, a Bush-Cheney situation. Yeah, exactly. More or less. Well, David Hornsby, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Oh. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. David Hornsby is a co-creator and star of the animated show Unsupervised. It airs Thursdays on FX. So there's this thing at the beginning of a sitcom called a cold open. It's the scene that grabs you before the credits even start. The best cold opens set up the episode, uh, but they're also like a little sketch in and of themselves. That's because the credits of a sitcom are what introduces the context of the show and the characters of the show. So the cold open has to work with the plot of the episode, but it also has to work without any context at all. It has to basically be a self-contained nugget of comedy perfection, which is exactly how I would describe the opening scene of News Radio Season 2, Episode 9. It's called The Cane. Hey, Bill. Something wrong with your leg? Not that I'm aware of, but thanks for asking. Oh. Well, if there's nothing wrong with your leg, then uh, why the cane? The what? The cane. The walking stick. Oh, you mean my cane. <laughs> News Radio's cast was full of amazing comedy actors. But in this scene are two of the best. Dave Foley, who plays the boss, Dave, might be the best straight man since Bob Newhart. Again, Bill, why do you have a cane? Alongside him is like Phil Hartman, cane, a man who could cane, bluster cane. like no yes, one see. before or since. It's just like that old saying, everybody loves a cane. No, Bill, I think the old saying is everybody loves a clown, which is what you look like with that thing. <laughs> the payoff here comes uh, when the bloviating uh, Hartman does this cane dance that is almost Fred Astaire-like in its grace and just spectacular in its banality. But Bill, you're not using the cane for anything. The cane should have a function. And, excuse me, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for a Chapman Graphic Arts. Are they on this floor? Uh, oh, the Graphic Arts place. Yeah, they're... Uh, me. You, my good man, are going to get back on the elevator, go down one floor, step off the elevator, turn left, walk down the hallway, and the graphic arts shop is one, two, three, four, five doors down. On the right, just open the door, and you're home. Thank you. Just glad I could be of service. And then he uses the cane to throw his breakfast... At Dave Foley. Bagel Dave. <laughs> Seriously, I could watch that scene every day for the rest of my life. Go on the internet, type in news radio, the cane, and live a better life. That's my outshot for this week. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Colin Walzak. 
Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-up. I'm Jesse Thorne. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.